The Imposter Club is brought to you by Talented People, the specialist executive search and TV production staffing company, run by content makers for content makers. Welcome to The Imposter Club, a podcast for people working in TV to admit that we are all just winging it. I'm Kimberly Godbolt, director turned talent company founder and I glean secrets from influential figures in the creative industries every day. Spoiler alert, more successful people than you'd ever realise still feel like a fraud. But you don't get to hear their stories. That changes right here. In this podcast, it's my mission to discover how you can carve out an award-winning career in the company of self-doubt by asking respected senior people to share their stories of career fears and failures and what they learned from them. Come on in to the Imposter Club. I'm already having an imposter syndrome thinking I'll be the worst guest you've ever had and it'll be a massive disappointment. <laughs> Bill Edgar Jones is one of those infamous names in TV that even if you're not quite sure why you know it, you do. For some, he was a peer on that golden era of slightly naughty live TV like The Big Breakfast and The Word. For others, like me, he was our big boss on Big Brother. And even if you didn't work on it, his name is likely to have been burnt into your brain from that last page of credits you saw over the course of his 10-year reign. And now he's director of Sky Arts and Entertainment, commissioning series like Portrait Artist of the Year, with his team overseeing hit series like A League of Their Own. When I email pitched Phil to be part of the Imposter Club, I fully expected I'd need to put my negotiation skills to use. But he pinged me back within minutes saying, if you want to talk about imposter syndrome and failure, you've come to the right place. So let me just say, this is a somewhat surprising and incredibly open conversation with such a senior and experienced industry legend. So go grab a coffee and don't miss a minute. Phil Edgar-Jones, welcome to the Imposter Club. How are you feeling this morning? Well, I'm feeling very impostery, so we're hitting the right tone, I think. <laughs> but yes, no, I'm, I'm good. You, you will say massively profound things, I've no <laughs> doubt. Yeah. We're going to talk about some of those moments that have been pivotal in your, in your career and how self-doubt has played a part in that. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, one of the most amusing things I've come across already that equally has set the tone is on the RTS website, Phil, you say, even before that, this is all in the third person because they're writing about your your career, two paragraphs of awesome accolades and credits. And then before that, he was a rubbish TV presenter on Movie Watch and Games World Live. Thankfully, all tapes of this period have been erased. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I, know, I, I think I hope I wrote that. <laughs> it wasn't just somebody else. Yes, I was a rubbish TV presenter, very briefly. And um. Uh, this is not even imposter syndrome. This is actually being rubbish. So I, I did do the first, the very first series of Movie Watch, which was in the 1990s uh, with the wonderful Johnny Vaughan, actually. Yeah, I did that series. And then I kind of just didn't get asked back. <laughs> it wasn't like I got fired or, or told I was... You got ghosted. I could, yeah, basically ghosted. Do you know what? There wasn't even email at the time. I think I phoned up and nobody even answered the phone to me. They'd all left. So I just didn't get asked, asked back again. And then I did another presenting job. I managed to blag that. So I presented this show called Games World Live, and I used to have to do the OBs. Uh, and it was, this is so long ago, right? It's pathetic, but it was kids playing video games 
over from an OB and through the studio using touch tone telephone technology. So this is on your on your dial up phone. There's before mobile phones. That is stuff. amazing. Anyway, I also didn't get asked back to the second season of that. So, so oh. yeah. well, what can you do? Maybe presenting wasn't wasn't your thing then. Definitely not. Definitely not. Congratulations on the OBE. Thank you. Uh, I didn't notice that on any of your emails. Do you know what? I, I, funny enough, I was thinking, should I put it on my email signature? And then I thought, no, you just look like a if a dick if you do that. I put it on my LinkedIn because that's that's that feels like you know that's industry and posh stuff. But I got this email from the cabinet office mm-hmm. and said, oh, you've been nominated for an OBE. Uh, fill out this form and tell us if you're going to accept it. If you don't want to accept it, fill out the form anyway and tell us why you don't want to accept it. And I immediately, of course, thought, yeah, someone's playing a joke on me and and this is, or they've made a mistake. They've got the wrong Philip Jones or Philip Edgar Jones or whatever. So I phoned them up and said, is this, is this real? <laughs> is this a real thing? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a real thing. Why, why do you think you felt like that? Well, I suppose you just think, you feel like a bit of a chancer, don't you? And, and, um, and you don't know how it's happened or who's nominated you or what the system is that makes it kind of work or, you know, why it, why in particular, why you've been sort of singled out. And it's a really lovely thing because people take a bit of trouble to do it and it's really heartening and lovely. But also you feel sort of guilty because you sort of think, really me? Is that, do I deserve that? Philip Edgar Jones, OBE. It does have a lovely ring. Yeah. I, I think you should be bold and stick it on your signature. You've, you deserve it. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll do that. My wife, I did say to my wife, shall I do it on my signature? She said, don't be, don't be an idiot. <laughs> don't, be, don't be showing off. No, well, look, we're going to get into a lot of that. <laughs> what I really wanted to do with the Imposter Club is to welcome people along to a safe space. So people who make TV, creative yeah. content, who can come and listen to successful people. Don't cringe. You're not allowed to cringe when I say that because you are. Talk about those times where they have felt like an imposter where they have doubted their own ability where they have genuinely failed at something but found a way to navigate their way through it onto other things i feel like everyone else in the tv world thinks that others have got their shit together and they're the only ones that haven't that's so true isn't it yeah and that's a little bit of self-doubt it's not a bad thing and I, look, I accept I have been really successful and very lucky, and also work really hard. So, uh, and I'm and I'm think I'm pretty good at what I do, but there's definitely been moments along the way. And I'm a bit older now, so I can reflect on things and look back on things, and I feel a bit more comfortable in my own skin. So you know, those those moments don't quite feel as catastrophic as they did at the time. Yeah. Okay. Great. First off, tell us a bit about how did you get into the industry. Phil, did you go through school and uni and, and straight into work? So I I didn't do very well at school, truthfully. I was quite uh, a disruptive people. I, I diagnosed with ADHD later on in life, but it kind of wasn't a thing at the time, I guess. Um, so all my report cards always used to say easily distracted. <laughs> so looking back, that's kind of right. quite obviously what was, what was going on. I didn't succeed at school and I, I was going to go to Stirling University to study English and I kind of got a place and then pretty much didn't do well enough in the exams to get to get the place in the end. So I, did, I went to college, I did a kind of media studies type degree and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was always quite interested in getting into media. I grew up in a place called West Kilbride in Scotland, then moved to Edinburgh. Um, 
and there weren't really that many opportunities up there. There weren't really opportunities in media down here, to be honest, unless you'd been to Oxford or Cambridge uh, in the in the late 80s, early 90s. So I came down to London. I got a job in a publishing company as a sub-editor. So that was uh, sort of correcting spelling and grammar. <laughs> when you came to London, did yeah, you know anyone you know. there? Like, did you have places to stay? You know, how did you manage? No, no, but I got a job at this little publishing company before I'd moved down. So I moved down, I lived in a, a bed sit in Turnpike Lane for a while. It was really lucky, the publishing company I worked with, everyone was in their kind of 20s. You know, it was like an extension of college. It was brilliant. It was mm. good fun. That's where I met my wife and, and we, we had a sort of great time, really. I used to go around all the magazines doing all the spelling and grammar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, Women's Own, New Women, um, Hello Magazine, I used to do that. It was it was that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then I started to write, a, do reviews of films and music and got to start to interview bands. Oh, cool. So the first interview I did ever was with Suede. Uh, and I'm still quite sort of friendly with them years later. But uh, but um, that, I remember interviewing them on a pavement outside a recording studio in East London. And the first, the first actual thing I ever did in TV was I, I did some uh, running on the title sequence of, for the word, the first series of the word. And I did it for free as I was still working, just, just to get my nose in the door. And um, if you ever watch the title sequence of the word, I think I, you can see this is somebody playing guitar. That's me. So that was very exciting. That is an amazing fact that I'm going to retain. That was quite cool. The word was brilliant. It was so edgy and cool. It was one of those things that you had to be like, it was a bit naughty to watch it as well. Well, at, at my age, it was like, God, did you see the word like the other night? You know what they No, did. it was. But then I got a job on The Big Breakfast. It was at the birth of the independent production company as well. So there weren't many opportunities. There was Planet 24. There was, I think, Talkback and Hattrick. There was just very few companies then you could work with. And Hattrick and Planet 24 was the super glamorous one where all the young people went. And they had The Big Breakfast. They had The Word... And I got a job as an AP on the on the Big Breakfast, which was I think was the was this was kind of the start of everything for me. But those other jobs, even though I failed at them, even though they weren't for me, I suppose, is that they allowed me to get in that universe. <laughs> so the Big Breakfast, then, this is a good place to start, actually. So this was kind of the birth of your real, the core of your career, and that I remember that era. It was it was such an exciting time in as a viewer as well as I know from working in telly at that point because everything was quite dynamic, wasn't it? Do you know it was great? It was great fun. It was kind of the wild west of television, and it was that was my generation, I suppose. And we were suddenly given given telly <laughs> to, to, to do, and uh, it was a bit dangerous and edgy, and like you could have a mad idea and whack it on the telly the next day, you know. And you were inventing game shows like my. One of my proudest moments was inventing a game called Get Your Knobbly Nuts Out, which was uh, Chris Evans was blindfolded and you, uh, over the phone, a bit like the golden shot, if you remember that. And you had to direct him to big, uh, it was a big bowl of milk. Over, I'm sorry, I'm even saying this, a big massive bowl of milk with some cereals in it and he had to pick the cereals out and they had a lovely theme tune. Amazing. And that sort of insinuation at like seven in the morning. It was all very carry on, really. But it was great. It was really hard work. It was incredibly long hours. But actually, it was it was okay. Sometimes you, things didn't work, and that didn't matter because you really learned from it. You got your kind of flying hours, I suppose. It was kind of a training ground, but like live on telly. Big training ground, but it was pretty. It could be pretty brutal as well. It wasn't. It wasn't a very forgiving kind of place in many respects as well. And this is where I got my first impostery moment, I suppose. Mm-hmm. 
we've got a website. Head to theimposterclub.com where you can contact the show and sign up to receive our emails as we build a warm community of creative imposters for world domination. <laughs> Don't get FOMO and head to theimposterclub.com after this episode. Okay, I'm going to get a bit geeky for a minute because I want to tell you about a company we've partnered with that I wish had been around when I was directing. Conote Pocketbook was created by documentary producer Eleanor Casely when she found getting paper consent forms signed by contributors or cast on location was A, fiddly, B, difficult for the edit, and C, a complete time waster. Not to mention so easy to lose when you think about GDPR. With Conote... You can just log in on your phone, tablet or desktop to collect, store and track contributor information on your shoot, which is then instantly accessible in one safe place for anyone on the team that needs it. And you can even use the app offline when you haven't got any signal. I got embarrassingly excited, you could say, when I had the demo. It's so cool and easy to use. You take contributor photos, write notes about what's sensitive and keep the whole team in the loop. And I can see why people rave about how much time it saves in the edit and the obvious cost saving that that brings. So no more illegible coffee stained note saying blur the brunette woman with short hair in coffee shop. And as a bonus, it's recommended by Albert as a sustainable solution that protects the planet whilst eliminating the faff. Prices start at just £95 a month. And with Eleanor and the team offering Imposter Club listeners a 20% discount if you mention this podcast. So get in touch via the website. It's www.conotes.tv, C-O-N-O-T-E.tv, or say hi to Eleanor directly, Eleanor at conote.tv. Why did you feel like an imposter in that situation? So there was a moment where and this is like this there's two i think there's two ways of getting imposter syndrome that i've been thinking about this actually doing this podcast the this self-imposed imposter syndrome which is about your own kind of self-doubt and your own uh you know your own propensity to catastrophize everything that's <laughs> going on in your life and i think there's also an imposter syndrome that is imposed upon you by other people because i think sometimes in any industry but telly can be a bit like this is that other people insinuating or thinking that you're not good enough, right? There's a terrible thing that happens in TV. People are very gleeful about other people's failure, which I always find really unedifying, you know? Oh, your ratings were awful. It's like that. there's a ha-ha-ha-ness that happens around that. It's not a nice trait. It's not a nice trait. And there was a moment in my career, and I, just think, I think this happens to a lot of people, and it's a hard moment to navigate, I think, is when you're promoted within an organization and suddenly you're managing your peers. And so this happened to me at Big Breakfast. There was a, a series producer role going pretty much in charge of all the VT elements. <laughs> anyway, I got, I got, so I got the job and it was between me and someone else. And they, they were quite vocal about complaining <laughs> that I'd got the job. Right. And to the boss and stuff. And also not just to the boss, but to everybody else in the team that I then had to sort of manage, including him. So that was a, that was a sort of tricky moment. And, and there was moments where I would, I would make notes and I would say, like, don't do that item, do this item. And I, I would kind of get ignored. And I had to be quite, start to get quite assertive about it all, which I didn't really want to do. And then I started to feel like, oh, maybe I don't deserve this. Maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe I'm, this is the wrong time for me. Maybe this is the wrong place for me. And it, and it wasn't, actually. I was capable. I was able to do it. But 
that there was no you're an imposter thing happening, I think, then. So that was a tricky time. And I think for anyone navigating that, it's quite quite a difficult thing to manage. And, and in telly, we don't get sent on management courses, <laughs> do we? we? We just get thrown into it. Were there any specific moments on that show that you remember thinking, oh my God, I don't, I don't fit in here and I don't like it? It was really long hours. I mean, I do remember sitting in my car one day on the way home. I'd done a show. I'd been up since three. I was going home at about six, seven in the evening and I was sitting at traffic lights and I was thinking, if I just drive at 20 miles an hour into that wall, I'll... I'll probably hurt myself. I might be in a neck brace. I might be hospitalized, but it'll give me six weeks off. <laughs> I'm so tired. That's pretty extreme. Yeah, it's pretty extreme. But then I suppose there was another moment which I really remember clearly, which is sort of funny, but not funny in a way. I- I'd done an item on the show about kidney stones. and As you do on a breakfast show. But it was called The Stuff, right? And you had to do your stuff in it. it was, you'd wanted to try and create something on the show that all the kids would talk about when they went into school that day, right? So I had three kidney stones, a little one, a medium one, and the biggest kidney stone in the world ever you'd ever seen in your entire life, right? Of course you did. <laughs> it was Chris and Gabby, I think. They had all the kidney stones under cloths, right? So you'd reveal, is this the biggest kidney stone in the world? No. Is this the, and all the crew, of course, getting involved. Um, anyway, thought, great, fantastic. Get back to the office later that day. Get called in. Everyone gets called into a room, and the boss at the time goes, right, I'm going to tell you how Phil fucked up the show this morning everybody the whole team there I'm getting humiliated in front of everybody really embarrassed and a per- the whole thing is so simple it's like instead of cloths it should have been cloches you know that it- oh the big bell things the big thing you get in the Savoy Hotel if you ever go there or whatever and they, they put your flambe under it whatever and truthfully absolutely right would have been Tiny detail in a way, but would have been visually much more arresting and better. But I didn't think it quite deserved public humiliation. But again, these are things that you kind of think, that's that's slightly undermining me with the people I'm supposed to manage. Not helpful. Also, the real lesson to me was like always public praise, private criticism is the only way to treat people because that's a, that was fair enough feedback and you have to give feedback. and it, it's not always comfortable feedback, but don't do it in front of the whole gang. Do you remember what happened after that? I think I sort of slunk back to the office and just thought, not really very motivated to do the next show now. I know that people listening will have experienced that when people haven't been trained in management style, right? Very few people have management and leadership training. So that happening is unfortunately still going on now. And look, however many years later, that has stuck with you. But what I'm gathering from that is you've learnt from that one moment as a young series producer, how not to manage other people in your career. Well, also, I think you've got your own natural way of doing things as well. You know, I wouldn't be shouty screaming at people. It's not, it's not the way I do things. And if I try to be like that my voice would go all squeaky and it wouldn't be authentic <laughs> they'd be like phil why are you playing a character yeah what's happened to you um and so i just do a disappointed face i think that works better <laughs> like a disappointed dad disappointed parent that's the thing isn't it no but these things you know it chips away at your confidence and i think 
people thrive on different things, don't they? And I, and I know I thrive when people say, that was great. Well, done. still to this day, and I know from myself when I've managed teams over the years, very important in telly to give people credit for their ideas and don't just nick the credit for stuff. That happens a lot, doesn't it, in TV? It's a bit of a bugbear of mine. You know, if someone's had the idea, give them credit for the idea. And actually saying thank you and well done, you can see it's worth more than a pay rise sometimes. You know, you see people just stand a little bit taller. I completely agree. And that's free. It is free. And all of us are, you know, we want people to think we're valued and that we've done something well. That helps motivate people to do stuff better. <laughs> not just yeah. not shouting at them in front of loads of other people. I don't know a time when that's worked. I've certainly been on the wrong end of being shouted at and it has absolutely done the opposite of you know, motivate me. Yeah. No, you retreat, don't you? You retreat. And I, what I do when that happens is I sort of give up. So what's, what's the point? Right. And you don't want to work for people who are mean. Why would you want to make them happy? The only reason I do it is out of fear. And that's not a safe environment not to good. be in, is it? Not good. There was a kind of culture, I think, around TV that was a bit like that. Also, you know, life isn't always easy. People aren't always easy. You know, you've got, you got to be able to deal with difficult characters as you go through life as well. So I needed to grow a thicker skin and be a bit more robust, frankly, as well. So which I think, in a way, whilst that wasn't pleasant, it was also, it really helped me toughen up. And it was not necessarily a bad thing. I wouldn't advocate shouting and screaming at people, but yeah, we can be a bit um, oversensitive now to any kind of criticism. I hear you. And actually, we're in a really complicated time for that because, you know, new generation of content makers are coming through yeah. very in touch with their emotions and have high expectations of their employers as they should. Absolutely. However, like you say, it is a pretty brutal industry. I do believe it's getting much better, but some of these things uh, you just have to experience to to get on and to find yourself and find your voice too, I think. I mean, difficult characters are difficult characters and everybody's got something going on in their head and we've got to be sympathetic to it, but we should always call out bullying and bad behaviour, always, always, always. It's um, it's not on, never has been on, definitely not. And people are doing it more, and that's good. They are, yeah. And there's more roots and more support for it too, which is great. Yeah. Okay, so big breakfast era. We're, we're, we're through that. You've made it to series producer, feeling a bit bruised. What did you go on to next? You know, how did you find the next thing? That's always quite a difficult career choice when you're feeling sensitive. I did a chat show on Channel Five called the Jack Doherty Show. So Graham Norton got his first gig. And um, I did lose my confidence when I was at Big Breakfast. I was a series editor and I got offered a job as a producer. So it was a step back. But I kind of happily took that step back because I thought maybe I wasn't ready. Maybe this wasn't the right time for me. Okay, that's a really interesting take, actually. So you took a demotion, if you like, to find your confidence. A little bit, yeah. I'd lost a bit of confidence and I, I didn't feel like a my face fitted it there really ever and anymore and I wasn't quite part of that gang. I went to the, uh, this company called Absolutely and that really was amazing and that for me felt like a rebirth, right? They're, they're a comedy company, Scottish people, uh, so you know, I could, I could, we could understand each other. Um, <laughs> uh, and they did this amazing sketch show. I really loved what they did. So I happily took a step back to be a producer. I really enjoyed that actually. Uh, and then the series editor left quite soon into the show actually only about three or four months and then I got promoted into that job and it was just great fun and I, that 
I just found my confidence doing that, right? And then I went to the Ginger to do the Priory mm-hmm. with Will McDonald and stuff. And he was brilliant and a great support and we got on really well. And that, that I think, is is so key. You know, telly is all about relationships. You know, it's a cliche and we all say it, but it absolutely is. It's about, it's about those collaborations you can make with people. It's about trusting people. It's about um, sharing values and a sense of sensibility and, and sort of all being in the trenches together, as it were, right? Mm. And I had a great team on the Priory. I was at that stage then, I was an established series editor. So even though inside I'm thinking, I had the right, I suppose, to be there in other people's eyes, right? Yeah, you had healthy nerves. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's a great way of putting it, healthy nerves. And I was quite proud of the Priory. It's, not, it's a slightly forgotten show, but it was really, it had lots of great stuff happening in it. It was that stage working with quite inspiring people so that it was helpful to be in that kind of atmosphere. Yeah, so that, that whole environment felt like it was bringing you back up from yeah having a bad experience perhaps in your new SP sort of role. Yeah, exactly. So that was a kind of rebirth. <laughs> yeah, Phil, a phoenix out of the flames. Phoenix out of the flames, exactly. This is the Imposter Club. Coming up. There was definitely a moment where I thought, I'm done, I'm finished, I'm bleak, I've, I've messed it up. I've got a favour to ask pretty please hit follow or subscribe to the imposter club podcast for two reasons one so you don't miss an episode but two because i'm told it'll help other people find us more easily after all the more people like us that are safe inside the imposter club the fewer there are outside on their own i need to take a minute to say a big thank you to the team at edit cloud for supporting the edit of the imposter club podcast The founder, Simon Green, said it was an obvious partnership as EditCloud felt like the imposter of the post-production world when they began. They are the world's first truly native cloud-based virtual editing solution, connecting tech, training and talent all over the world. EditCloud was created by editors for editors, connecting storytellers everywhere, enabling them to craft their best stories to excite, enrich and inspire audiences wherever they are much like this podcast. Thank you, team. I am so happy not to be crying into my laptop while I midnight edit. Welcome back to The Imposter Club, where Phil Edgar-Jones is about to helm the world's most talked about TV series after a major career wobble. So you're feeling better. You kind of built yourself up with these chat shows and your confidence. How did you get the Big Brother role? I got phoned to do the first series and I couldn't do it because I was doing the priory and I didn't want to uh, break my contract. And so I got asked to do the live shows on second series of Big Brother. And we also invented, uh, well, I didn't, it was someone else's idea, but uh, we made the spin-off show with Dermot O'Leary, Little Brother. So it was, the fir- I think, the first of its kind. And then they had sort of live streaming on E4, which came from an idea by Andrew Newman, who was the head of entertainment at that point at Channel because he spotted in the first series that everyone was sitting around watching the the live feed in the channel. So he thought, well, why don't we let the whole country watch it? So there were lots of arguments about whether that was a good or a, good or a bad idea, but it was a good idea. Good times, but challenging times. I mean, you'd watched the first series go out, obviously, while you were making The Priory. And then you're That's saying right, yes yeah. to series two. How did you feel about doing that? Oh, fine. I was really chuffed to be asked. Do you know what? It was really good fun. And we were trying out something new. So... and. You know, we didn't have the massive pressure. And I, I love working with Davina and Dermot. They were great fun. 
and I had a just again a sort of great team. And then I got asked to do the third series uh, of Big Brother as the exec. So that's when I sort of took it over, really. And that was the Jade Goody and Kate Lawler and all that. Alison Hammond now, for her first TV appearance. And were you feeling quite comfortable in your own skin at that point? Yeah, totally. There was no, I didn't, I, I didn't have any doubt that I was king of the world. <laughs> no, that's... <laughs> he's he's already retracting that i can see on the camera he's like no 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 no, no. no. i was pretty confident at that time I'd, I'd sort of i think do you know i think you have to sort of prove yourself a little bit you always have to prove yourself don't you and and there's different points in a career where you maybe go back a bit or you try something else and you have to sort of make people believe or make yourself believe you can do it so by that stage you know i'd i'd run some bigger teams I'd, I'd run some bigger programs i'd obviously embedded myself in the big brother culture mm-hmm. so um i was able to i have two fantastic series producers i think as you get more experienced as a manager you you kind of work out what you need around you what your where your blind spots are and your gaps are i mean i'm truthfully quite chaotic and a bit scattergun which can i think be a bit difficult for people actually so i know that i have to have people that can organize an army and people that will call me out and make things work really on a practical level so yeah but you've probably discovered more about yourself with your adhd diagnosis right a little bit i can uh, i when it finally happened i could understand i could understand and manage a bit of those behaviors a bit better actually it's funny uh, after it happened i came into work and i said oh look this happened and i showed her the thing said we knew this all along what are you talking about (laughs) it's like do you think you knew somewhere in your mind all along that perhaps you had ADHD? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it's that again. You know, it's a funny thing. Even that diagnosis, I think, I feel like a bit of a mental health imposter because why everyone's everyone's got ADHD now, but it's like, <laughs> we're all on some kind of spectrum. This is what you start to think, isn't it? It's like, why do I deserve to have this? But but it does explain a lot. How does it manifest itself for you? Well, I can either hyper-focus on something if I'm interested in it or I'm very easily distracted or I'll, at home I'll often be thinking about something else where someone's talking to me and I'll interrupt them and I'll do this, 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 things that are challenging for other people. You know. Do you think it's made you better at anything else? Well, well it's funny because this person that diagnosed me at the end, he said, you're all right, though, aren't you? You found the right job for yourself. It kind of works, doesn't it? You've been quite successful, haven't you? Went, oh, yeah. So, so somehow this way of the head working kind of suits <laughs> the job I do and has probably helped because I wasn't a, I, I wasn't a very bit of a failure at school. But r- recognizing instinctively, I think, how you need to build a team that works around that has mm-hmm. different skills and different skill sets and that... And you and how to be so sympathetic to all those, so that it's not just your chaotic approach that is uh, informing everything is really helpful, and that's true of now and my team at Sky as well. Yeah, I mean, you must in a way find it helpful to have. I know we talk about labels a lot, and sometimes they're not helpful at all. But to actually have something yeah. which is like, okay, that explains the way my mind works and what I need around me. Yeah, it's easier to, if you know about it, and then I got some help with managing it, and that's been more recent, actually, and I, I sort of don't always successfully do it, but I, I have some strategies. <laughs> I wonder what it would have been like if you were, had been diagnosed at school. 
Well, I do you know. I think I would have been medicated, and it wouldn't have been a good thing. So I'm I'm kind of happy. I think for me, our job as humans is to accept other humans and to try and understand them. I think that's great. It's a it's a nice way of thinking about it. Okay. Anyway, back to Big Brother. So it was going really well. You were loving it, right? Did you have a great time? I had a great time. I had you know made some friends for life. I remember vividly a moment uh, at the end of Big Brother 3, two things. I think it was just before the final and there was Jade, there was Kate, there was Johnny. I was getting the tube home. I got the train from Elstree's tube home. Everybody on the tube was reading something somewhere about Big Brother, whether it was Heat magazine, the sun, the star, whatever, right? And then I got, it went into the local Marks and Spencers to buy some something. And there was people stacking the shelves. They were talking about Kate and Jade. Everywhere I went, that was, it was Big Brother. Wow. Everybody was talking about it. And those moments, so that's, you're very lucky in a career if you can have a moment like that where you're doing something which is almost feels like the most important thing in the country, even though it's just a TV show. People in a house <laughs> and, on the telly. <laughs> I know, exactly. But it was, it was sort of brilliant. You know, you were kind of like, yeah, wow, this is amazing, you know, and, and and the team that worked in it, everybody loved it because you felt like you had access to some secret knowledge and people would ask you about it. And even though they hated it, they were sort of really fascinated by it as well. All the newspapers loved it. And That's quite a big ego moment, I suppose, isn't it? In a healthy yeah, way? Yeah, totally. A, an ego stroke. Mm. It, could be, it could be healthy or it could be massively unhealthy. Don't believe the good publicity and don't believe the bad publicity. Just, just get on with it. So Big Brother for, for years... Years and years and years. That ended on Channel 4, didn't it, with you? You, you saw it all the I way through. I saw it all the way through to Channel 4, and stupidly, rather than hanging about to get redundancy, I, I decided to leave. <laughs> and uh, I didn't want to do it anymore. It was, you know, you, you come to the... You get... I think also in telly, you've got to be careful about knowing... Doing a proper Ricky Gervais and knowing when you're done, you know, when you've run out of Is ideas. That what it's called? Doing a Ricky. Well, you know, he did The Office was just... He just did that right... Uh, and I, I couldn't have done. I couldn't have done Big Brother anymore. Even the smell of the Big Brother house. Uh, it's funny. I, I was at, even the music now. I find triggering. <laughs> right. I can. I can hear it. And Marcus's voice. It's Marcus's voice. But it was a, like it was a great, great time. Yes. So we're capping off Big Brother. An incredible time. You didn't want to do it anymore. As it finished on Channel Four, you thought, yeah. "Great, good time to sort of hang up the hat." How do you find something? that is fulfilling and challenging and exciting when you've just achieved eight years of Big Brother? So this is, right, this is the low point in my career I'm getting to now, right? So this is a step backwards. This is a this is the wilderness years, <laughs> or year, maybe two years. So I kind of didn't have a plan, right? I just thought, I'll, I'll go and do something else. And then I should have, in retrospect, I should have taken a bit of time out. But I got asked to do a job in America, which was a mistake. I just got my head turned a little bit by it. A lot of people I knew had gone off. I worked on Big Brother, worked on Strictly, went out to do Dancing with the Stars. We're having the best time in LA. Mm-hmm. So I thought, yeah, I, I don't know. There's a bit of me thought, I'll give that a go. So I went out to do a show called It was <laughs> Skating with the Stars, which was a... Very different to Dancing with the Stars. Just on slippery surface. Dancing with the stars, but slippy, exactly. You're dead on. It's just with, with more falling down. 
Look, I was two things. I was spectacularly unsuited to that kind of telly. I don't really like it. That shiny floor ends type thing. I was spectacularly unsuited to LA culture. Just wasn't for me. Uh, I, I came into the project quite late, so the team was already there and established. And there's a culture as well of, in the LA of firing people quite a lot. And also, this thing about everyone piles in on an email. It's just drive me mad. Like an email will go out, and you had to almost be the first or best to respond to it within 0.3 of a second. And I, I'm not. That's not my style. So I wasn't able to create my own culture for the program. Okay. I was the showrunner. It was already established, and it, it was very rigid. And I couldn't. I couldn't shift it. I couldn't. So I wasn't really. I didn't have a purpose there. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a role in a way. And so what I did was that when I lose a bit of confidence, I sort of like to retreat from things rather than dive into things. I lean back from something rather than lean into it. I suppose, and. Uh, it just didn't suit me, and I, and the first show went out, and it was didn't rate, and it wasn't very good, if I'm honest. I don't necessarily take the blame for it being not very good. Happy to take the blame, and I've done lots of not very good things, <laughs> but I don't think this was my fault. Um, anyway, I got I got I got canned from that. I got sent home. I got fired. Wow, how how did that come about? After the first show, I got taken aside and said that like yeah, I think we're done here. Um, uh, we're going to get someone else to do your job. How did you react? To be honest, I was I was relieved because I didn't I was miserable and I want I didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't like the show. I didn't feel I was able to run the show effectively. So I was quite happy and came home. And you weren't happy though, surely. No, these things they. When you get made redundant like that or fired like that, it absolutely chips away at your confidence. And then I sort of, I just had this the time I was just being making terrible decisions. So I went and got a job sort of running a production company with an agent and it sort of was never going to work and it didn't work and we kind of fell out a bit. And I suppose that's the thing, you're kind of like at top of the world, running the biggest show on telly, uh, bit of status to just not, that all going, going, you know, and that's those are that's a difficult moment. So then, then, then I suppose if you're talking about imposter syndrome, you're thinking, oh God, maybe, maybe this is me, and uh, it was everybody else that did that. I had nothing to do with it, really, and this is this is where I need to be because I'm I'm not good enough. Did you think all of that stemmed from not having a plan after Big Brother? Because it sounds like that one Completely. decision to go to America was the wrong one and then that kind of created a domino effect of other bad decisions and tough times for you. Yeah, exactly. It was one bad decision after the next where actually I should have just stopped and I could have have survived for at least a year without having to work. I always had this thing, you know, from when I was young, it's like when I was freelance as well, if I wasn't in work or didn't know I had work coming up, I'd, I'd, I'd get really kind of anxious about it. And I totally get that with other people now. And I try to say to people, like, this is the mistake I made, right? Don't, do not panic. People don't forget you, actually. Because I thought at that point, I was doing this show, running this company. We actually got some stuff away. We were doing okay. But was just, the relationships weren't working. You know, you have to feel confident around the, the people around you. You have to feel like you're in the right place. You have to feel like you share values, I think, and share a mm-hmm. sensibility. And you're all running in the same direction. I was very unhappy. 
And it kind of all came to rather explosive end. Not a happy ending. Uh, but then I, I got I got kind of saved by Sky, like a Stuart Murphy. He, there was this headhunters called, and I thought, oh god, maybe I still am. People haven't forgotten me. And I went for an interview with Stuart, and I got the job running the entertainment stuff at Sky. But that year, I'll never forget it. It's like, and in a way, I was really glad it happened because it taught me quite a lot about myself. For a moment, I wasn't very resilient, and then I got resilient again. But can look after myself a lot better now than I could at that stage and I don't make those sort of silly decisions anymore. You had built such a great reputation and had had a brilliant experience, felt kind of on top of the world, you know, running Big Brother, yet still walking into a very senior job in just the wrong position in the wrong environment had a huge crisis of confidence. Yeah, it just wasn't me and I should have known that, you know. I've had this conversation with some female colleagues, there's a man and a woman thing. Like blokes tend to go, oh, I'll do that, you know, and I'm maybe a bit guilty of doing that. Most of the women I work with go, oh, I'm not sure if I can do that. <laughs> and I'm spending my life trying to persuade them they can because they're much better than me. <laughs> but I'll just dive into something. <laughs> and I dove into the, I dived into the absolutely wrong thing. And uh, yeah. I didn't stop to consider it. It was like that impulsive kind of slightly chaotic brainy thing of not, not thinking things through. Yeah. I think. Did you seek help at that point, or professional help when you were at your lowest point? I was. I did have a bit of uh, a little bit of depression, so I, I did medicate my way through that a little bit. So yes, I did. But like again, I'm, my wife is the most amazing woman in the universe, and she kind of she's probably the most empathetic person you'll ever meet. So she, if it wasn't for her, she was just absolutely talked me down from the ledge, as it were, and kept kept me going through that sort of period. Um, but yeah, like, you know, and also I think the thing is, you always got to be aware, you're going to make mistakes in your career, you're going to make mistakes in life, you're going to make some choices that you maybe shouldn't have made, but, you know, I don't regret anything because it taught me quite a lot about myself and it, and it led to some better things. But there was definitely a moment where I thought, I'm done, I'm finished, I'm bleak, I've, I've messed it up, I've, you know, I'm not going to earn any money anymore, blah, blah, blah. Cat totally catastrophizing everything, really stupidly but yet we're all capable of it aren't we we are we are it grounds you to have those sort of humble roots i think yeah you know that's you know not not everything's going to go our way <laughs> so you got the phone call sky yeah. wanted to see let's you. do happy stuff let's do happy <laughs> stuff so we yeah we've done your, your most challenging year sky saved you you said i mean that is that's pretty uh dramatic wording yeah like is it uh over-dramatizing <laughs> over over it. But it was brilliant. And Stuart got me into Sky and I started working at Sky and the entertainment stuff. And actually, these places aren't easy to work. You've got to prove yourself and it's proving yourself all over again in a different kind of role. I kind of did the entertainment stuff for a couple of years and then I was really passionate about arts content. I was more interested in commissioning into Sky Arts than I was for Sky One at that time. Which actually I find really interesting because for me, you are Mr. Factent not shiny floor, but entertainment. And arts doesn't seem like the most natural fit, if I'm honest. Well, there's, there's, see, there, there we go. That, that's it. That's really interesting, isn't it? So, so you think I'm an imposter in the arts? Oh, maybe <laughs> I did. I don't now that you've been running it for years. <laughs> well, that, but that's interesting. It's really interesting that, you see, because much more interested in doing the art stuff. So I did got Portrait of the Arts of the Year away and stuff, which is kind of, I guess, a fact show in fairness. But, when I got the job, 
the job at the Sky Arts came up and I and Stuart said, why don't you do it? And I went, really? Um, okay. Uh, and then I, I definitely had a job to do, right? Definitely had a job to do to convince people in the arts and in television that I wasn't an imposter. And I think finally, after maybe 10 years, I've done that. But, but it's just really interesting you said that because I remember doing a, a panel when I first started at Edinburgh TV Festival and yeah. it was Christian Gura Murphy. And the first thing he did which fair enough, he's a journalist, it was just, he tried to catch me out, right, about what arts I knew about and stuff. That suggested to me there was a sense that maybe I, other people thought I was an imposter in this role and the arts and the rest of television are completely different, right? Truthfully, this is television about a subject, isn't it? Right. So, so why, why, why can't anyone do that, really, if they're interested and passionate about a subject? And in arts broadcasting, also my job isn't necessarily to know everything, right? is to find the people that do know stuff that can bring their knowledge to the to the channel. Absolutely. And I refused, right? I absolutely refused to feel like an imposter in that situation because I knew other people thought I was. And my um, thing was that, no, I can do this. I'm going to do it. And I've got an amazing team of people around me. We work with amazing, brilliant producers who I think now hopefully trust us. I absolutely love it every day is a joy i get to peek into so many different worlds but i i was determined right determined that i was gonna make this work and i think i have i know and i do not feel like an imposter in this role i think i've me and my team have changed the perceptions of this channel and got lots of people in the arts and cultural worlds want to work with us really big names want to work with us because they no one sort of trust us so I'm not having any of the imposter stuff around this. And how satisfying does that feel? It feels great. It feels great. What I want to pick up on, which I find really interesting, is that you refused to feel like an imposter. That, that sounds like a real progression of your inner confidence. You were aware that other people might see you like that, but you were so confident at this point in your skill set and your passions and that you can do it you kind of put two fingers up to it a little bit it's almost quite good to have something to fight against isn't it you, you give yourself a kind of thing to say like do you know what i'm stubbornly going to sh- i'm going to show you <laughs> yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna do this <laughs> yeah it's like a target a challenge exactly. you set yourself you know i mean what 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 part of making tv is easy anyway oh who said it was easy who said it was easy no one ever Did somebody say it but- was easy no I haven't found the handbook yeah. yet. I've, I mean, I've checked down the back of the sofa. I've asked everyone <laughs> I know. It's just not there. Yeah. It's got to be fun as well, man. It's got to be fun, this. It's really got to be fun. We can't take ourselves too seriously. Is there anything you wish you could tell the more junior Phil? My big bit of advice I always give to people, there's two bits of advice, right? Uh, turn up on time and don't be a dick. I think that's really important. Strong. <laughs> Strong. Uh, the second bit of advice is take it seriously, but wear it lightly. And think if you do that, you're going to be okay. We take our jobs seriously. We do as do them as well as we possibly can, but we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously and we should we should have a sense of humour about stuff, really. I just sort of, the little cogs turned in my head there. They're quite slow. And I, I just chewed that over. I love that. I might borrow that. Take it. Use it. Do it. I will. What's the advice you'd give your younger self? I always like hearing other people's advice. Um, 
I think I would tell myself that it's fine to change your mind about stuff. Yeah, good one. Because I'm quite a, um, I'm sort of an all-in kind of person and I'm quite a proud person. And if I decide to do something, I want to do it well and I want to commit to it. And whilst I still stand by that, there have been times in my own career and life where I think I've stuck at something just out of stubbornness and because I think I should and that other people might be let down if I change my mind. So, for yeah. example, when I, I was directing and I, I had a real big kind of career moment where I became a mum and I ended up being the statistic that I now, you know, struggle with in the staffing world, trying to find brilliant female shooting directors. And yeah. I, I left. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. But, but I also didn't want to do it in a half-assed way. I didn't want to come back and then not be able to film that because I need to go back to my son's bedtime. Um, so I agonized for ages because I didn't want to do a half good job. And I was being, a, I felt like I was being a not a very good mum, but also not doing my directing job as well as I could have if I didn't have children. So I ended up leaving and going into talent management, which you know, was a brilliant decision, but I really tortured myself about it. And I, I would think I would tell myself that it's okay. Yeah, you should. And it's also a failing of the industry, not of you. It's a failure of the industry to accommodate mums. Just still the case. Yeah, it is. And it is why we struggle to find such good female yeah. leaders. One last thing I wonder about, is this whole imposter syndrome discussion actually to do with finding happiness and peace with your creative self? God, wow, that's a big question. Uh, I think, look, I think a bit of self-doubt is super healthy because if you don't, I think most of the people that I thought are pretty good in my career have been quite happy to say when they are not confident about something. I think some of the t times the people that, are, that appear super confident are just inside they're crying and dying. <laughs> We're all making this up as we go along. We've all got to remember that, haven't we? And we've all got to remember that nobody really knows the answer to everything. No, no, nobody does. You know, people are very unequivocal about stuff, but actually... This is great of job we're doing. And we pour over television, right? We pour over television. We theorize about it. Your note should be cut the first 10 minutes out of a show because like an audience that is looking at it is going, don't like this. And they switch over. And we've spent hours going, you know, feeling our self-doubt, being overconfident, saying how brilliant it is. The audience just goes, nah, this is shit. Turns it over. So Maybe I should take that feedback about this podcast. Is it all right if I chop the first 10 minutes of this podcast, Phil? <laughs> Well, that might be your, that might be the note. That might be the note. It usually is. Honestly, I work with English National Opera as well. I'm on the board of English National Opera. That's another impostery thing. But I go to most operas and go, guys, you can cut an hour out of this one. <laughs> most theatre you can cut twenty minutes out of. Most telly at least ten minutes. Most opera about an hour. That's the way. That's the way <laughs> the arts work. How do they receive that feedback? <laughs> um, actually, though, we have a laugh about it. I love that. I think that's almost what you're talking about is a perception of what you should be doing. And, and, and actually, if you just act like yourself and assume that other people will be happy with that because you're being authentic, it's quite liberating. Sometimes people will turn up to work as their work self and uh, it's not who they really are. And, you know, we do have to differentiate between home and work. Otherwise, I'd be at home trying to manage my wife's creative thinking, which wouldn't <laughs> be helpful. Uh, we'd have a row. But if you can, you can feel like you're your true, authentic self at work. I think people respond to that really. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and it allows people to be comfortable in your presence. 
Yeah. yeah. It's important. Oh, well, Phil, thank you so much for spending time with me to talk about your career. I've loved it. Yeah, see, you're good at you're good at the podcast thing. So there we go. I'll oh, tell you that you. You, you you got me to say things I probably wouldn't, I shouldn't say. I want to know how you feel now about putting OBE somewhere on your emails or you know letterheads. Uh, we'll see. I'll I'll, I'll, I'll have a wee think about that. I'm not sure I'm ready. All jokes aside, it's an amazing achievement, and Thank I think you. what you have accomplished at Sky and throughout your career is just incredible and I've respected you from afar and also from you know the big brother set somewhere although I was a, a lowly runner uh, for a long time so I've I really do appreciate your your timing to get to know you a bit and for you as well to share your inner self with everyone listening I, I, I think that is is quite a feat and you've you've just done it brilliantly and I thank you for your honesty bless you well thanks for having me I hope it's not the shittest one of your podcasts <laughs> There it is right there, imposter syndrome. Thank you, Phil. Really appreciate it. Right, come on, imposters. Let's get everyone talking about this stuff more. Open up your WhatsApp groups and tell your production pals they need to listen to The Imposter Club. Everyone loves a podcast recommend, and this is so relevant for them. So that kudos you'll get back is a free gift from me. See you next time. The Imposter Club is brought to you by Talented People, the specialist TV executive search and production staffing company run by content makers for content makers. Every day, the team matchmake, influence and place premium senior talent in behind the screens roles with integrity and a human approach. Produced and hosted by me, Kimberly Godbolt, executive producer, Rosie Turner. Thanks again to Edit Cloud for editing this series.